0: You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood, told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel.
1: Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and thanks for tuning in to Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, This is where each week you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Now, before we get into today's guest and his story, and trust me, there's some really different stuff in this story. There's some great, powerful, inspirational stuff, but some wild parts too. But uh, before we get to that, since this is our first official episode, let me give you a brief rundown of why we're here and what to expect from our show. Now, I'll explain this in more detail in episode zero, so if you haven't listened to that yet, go and listen. It's, it's worth the 12 minutes. But if you're like me, and you'd rather just have the quick and dirty version, then uh, here's what Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes is all about. As men, we know that right now, men and masculinity are taking a beating. Uh, masculinity is being described as toxic, and now, more than ever, uh, what it means to be a man and what it means to be, uh, to be masculine is more confusing and more under fire than ever before, and the result is a lot of us are frustrated. A lot of men are frustrated, and a lot of men feel lost and angry. I especially see this in uh, younger men today. Now, there's this pervasive notion that being a man, that being masculine, is bad and it's it's somehow wrong. Now. Adding to the problem is it's become harder and harder to find strong, positive, masculine role models, especially in the media. So men are thinking, who can we look to in real life to be strong, positive role models for us? How do we find the men who can lead us and guide us on our journey to modern manhood? Uh, Where are the men who are going to challenge us, push us, motivate and inspire us along our hero's journey? Because this really, this is who, this is part of who we are as men, right? It's part of our being. It's something that's been done in cultures around the world for centuries. Uh, but now this is something that we've lost. So that's why we're here, to bring that back. Because look, I, you know, it, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, where you are on the path, we're all on the path to being better men, Because if you're not constantly learning and pushing and growing, if you're not constantly challenging yourself, which is something today's guest is going to talk about, uh, you're just going backwards. So I started searching. I started searching for these men and I found that there actually are a wealth of men out there who are all strong, positive role models for us. And the best part is they're all eager to share their stories and help us on our journey. So these are the men I invite on the show to share their stories with you. And so that's what you can look forward to each week. And again, for more information, please go check out episode zero. It's titled Start Here. Also, I recommend you head over to our website. It's at, you'll find it at WLKHpodcast.com. Again, WLKHpodcast.com. Over there, you'll find a bunch of extras and things that uh, we can't fit in here. Uh, You'll also find the definition of the four archetypes that make up our title, what it means to be a warrior, a lover, a king, a hero. And uh, you're also going to find our sacred seven core values. These are critically important, guys. A lot of our guests talk about them. They talk about how some of these things, uh, courage, honesty, integrity, commitment, duty, honor, and love, those are the seven, how those seven things have really helped them in their lives and how they live with some of these core values themselves. Also, uh, I talk about the round table in episode zero. I forgot to mention this. The round table is made up of 10 men. These are 10 very close friends of mine. They're like brothers of mine. And they're all from different walks of life. And these guys are among the most insightful and aware men I know. And my, my personal mentor, RJ, also sits in on the round table And uh, we meet regularly to discuss some of the issues and concepts that get brought up in these interviews. Some of the things the uh, guests that we have talk about, uh, we bring that up at the round table. And then you get to hear some of their insights on what they feel. And you're going to hear some of those insights today on this episode. Also on the website, I meant to mention that uh, very soon we're going to be putting up links to some resources that I know you're going to love. For those of you who just want more than just listening... Okay, we love that. Those of you that want to experience more, right? Because look, uh, experience is everything. You know, uh, I love that you come in here and check this out and listen to me talk. I love that you listen to our guest talk. But um, listen, getting out and actually doing it, okay, there's no substitute for the power in that, right? It's like, um, give you an example, it's like just reading or hearing about something versus going out and experiencing it yourself firsthand. Like you can look at a map of Greece. You can watch videos on Greece. You can talk to people and hear their experiences of being in Greece. But that doesn't mean you've been to Greece, right? Until you actually go there and say, stay on the Isle of Santorini, which is absolutely beautiful, by the way. Until you go to Santorini and see it for yourself, meet the people, eat the food, lay on the beach, that experience now is part of you. That experience is so much more. So I want you to know that I am committed to finding you the best experiences, uh, the ones that I know are going to help move you forward, and I'll be listing those on the site. So go there, check back often. Again, it's wlkhpodcast.com. All right, now let's get to today's guest. Today's guest spent 14 years as the strength coach at St. Thomas Aquinas High School in Fort Lauderdale. If you haven't heard of this school, it's a top-ranked high school football program year in and year out. It's almost always either number one or number two every year. And St. Thomas leads the nation nearly every year in the number of players on NFL rosters. Last year, there were 15, and that was more than double the next closest school. Uh, Players in the NFL right now that went to St. Thomas include Joey Bosa, his brother Nick Bosa, Geno Atkins, Giovanni Bernard, and three players who reunited on the uh, Patriots Super Bowl championship team, James White, LaMarcus Joyner, and Philip Dorsett. Now, even Hall of Famer Michael Irvin is a product of the St. Thomas football program. So guys, this is a top-level school with top-level staff all around. And our guest today, Rob Biasati, is a part of that staff. And he has been for a long time. As I said, he was the football team's strength coach for the last 14 years. He uh, just stepped aside last year to focus on his duties as dean of students for the school. Well, Rob is gonna talk to us not only about his role mentoring these young men who played football there, but also about working under his personal mentor, the legendary coach, George Smith, who hired Rob back in 2005. Now, Rob has some really interesting ideas, some really unique and boundary pushing ideas on how to run a strength program, how to motivate a team, And also how to create the bonds that push men to fight for each other when things get tough. And he's going to talk about those too. Uh, Rob also has a company called End Game Adventures, where he takes people on transformational trips to different locations around the world. These are trips that that challenge people to step outside their comfort zone. And the results can be life-changing. So check that out. His website there is endgameadventures.com. And, and guys, make sure you stick around for the story of him eating a beating cobra's heart on an adventure trip he took to Vietnam. It's, it's an amazing story. And seriously, guys, if you've eaten a beating cobra's heart, I have got to have you on my show. But, but all kidding aside, that story is really a great story of not only bonding with the friend he was on the trip with, but with men of a completely different culture. It's a great story of how these kind of uh, bold acts can bring men together. All right, so let's hear from Rob Biasati. I, um, I asked Rob how he ended up as a strength coach because he told me it wasn't something he had aspired to do. He was a basketball player and a basketball coach. He hadn't played football. But Rob told me he's learned to be open to opportunity when it comes your way and taking a chance, even if you have no experience at all. So here's Rob talking about getting that call from Coach Smith.
2: Well, what happened was um, I, I'm very fortunate. Like... I, <laughs> I I can't, I can't like, sometimes things hang on one phone call. So I was working at a high school in North Carolina. I was a basketball coach and I played basketball at St. Thomas and the head basketball coach who was in his late twenties when I was in high school in the eighties. I don't know even how, how I got my number. It was 1998. It was pre-social media. The internet was just getting going. He called me out of the blue and said, do you want to coach basketball at St. Thomas? And I was living in North Carolina. Long story short, I was like, of course. So St. Thomas is a football school. I never played football for Saint Thomas. I never coached football. Um actually I did coach football in North Carolina, but it was like a, a token assistant position. I wasn't really a, a true football coach. So we had lost to Lakeland this program called Lakeland football the, in two thousand four and they had no they had no strength program. There was no players were on their own in the offseason, which is incredible to think about today considering what's happening with performance training I'm talking about at the elementary school level. I mean, you that know, young,
1: they're putting them in performance training in elementary school now,
2: if not elementary school consistently in middle school. I mean, so just to give you an example, we went from St. Thomas before I created the program and you had guys coming in here and there taking ownership and then leaving pre that, but nothing that was consistent. So we, we made it a, 10-month – or excuse me, a, a six-month mandatory every guy on the team had to go to, this, to these four days a week. And the, how that happened was, obviously, I knew all the players and the culture at St. Thomas. They didn't want to hire me. They wanted to hire this other guy who had all these credentials and certifications, and he wanted like 200 bucks an hour. So when they came to me, Coach, when I say him, Coach Smith, um, he asked me to do it. But I said I would, and when they – and I was really intrigued by the challenge. And when they said yes and I said yes, I went back to school and got my master's degree in exercise science concurrently. So from 2005 till recently, till I left. But my point is, is that – I mean, how lucky am I? I happen to work for what I consider – well, for what Max Preps considers one of the top ten coaches all time in high school football history. I had no knowledge. I knew he was a great coach. I had no knowledge of that. Then I got to work. I had freedom. Then, I mean, the type of athletes I was exposed to—it's really tough. That's why I talk about the destiny part. Like, if you'd have put me anywhere else, I think I would have done okay. But wow, what a platform with the freedom with the coach that I had. So once I gained Coach Smith's trust, it was basically carte blanche. And then I was able to. To create this beautiful thing, um, that I, that I'll always look back on with like the fondest of memories, um, and it's just a great. And I was able to put my own twist on it and be unorthodox and do all those things. And so, and then, and then on top of all of that, I'm hitting. Look at the luck here. You're hitting high school football at the height of its ramp with the internet and social media and this national type of stage, like. High school football now was not played at the local level or state level. It's played on a national stage. So we're traveling to Ohio State Stadium. We're, we're traveling to um, all these different the, – the West Point. We're traveling to the Superdome in New Orleans. We're traveling all over the country. To play, and teams are coming to us, and, it's, and it's, it's televised on ESPN.
1: Rob stopped talking for a minute and got introspective. And then, uh, then he started talking about Coach Smith – and you could feel the respect and admiration he feels for him and for what Coach Smith taught him.
2: And you know what, Coach Smith, his greatest, one of his greatest assets is not only is he, this guy could motivate somebody just by him being in a room. Not only is he the best motivator I've ever seen in my life, not only is he able to keep two opposing thoughts in his head, which is a talent. Like if he walks into a room of 30 people, all thirty of those people are going to think he's like a Bill Clinton. Everybody in that room is going to think that that Coach Smith cares about them. He's going to give everybody in that room what they need, and um, I, I love him like a father. And uh, it was a great
1: run, right? Because you said
2: uh... what, what you you'll, you'll never see you'll you'll, you'll, you'll Eric, you never see any. You get him. I don't know if you met him, but you'll never ever 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 ever. I will never run into a creature like that in. <laughs> My entire – they'll never, ever – you can't put the guy into words. He is a unicorn.
1: Tell me more. I mean, you call him Gandalf, I think, is what uh, – I, you know. I just um,
2: – you know, I was there in high school. I didn't play for him. Uh, I was in the hallways with him. We had a couple interactions. He's just the type of guy that can – you know, it's a different world now. It's a different world now than it was four years ago. But certainly in the 70s when he got started, he was like 25 years old and he had this vision and he, he hung in there and he, he changed lives. And um, he just has this 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 magnetism and, and, and along with this, this caring, but also this fear like, uh, you know, he, he, he had no problem cursing me out. But at the same time, if something was going on in my life. You know, one time I was in the coach's office and, you know, everyone has ups and downs in their lives. And, I, and, and during that, it was, it was, maybe it was during this time that I was talking about because you, you, you give a lot of yourself when you're training 100 guys. You give a, you give a tremendous amount of yourself and, you know, you're, you're caught up in whole different places. And, and you know, there's a boomerang effect. I think there's a boomerang effect and you give so much of yourself that sometimes you leave yourself behind. And so, you know, I don't know if you want to call it depression or anxiety or feeling low, whatever you want to call it, that Coach Smith, one time he said two words to me. He came into a room. I didn't tell him I was down. It was probably obvious. We we're in the coach's office together. And he looked at me, and he goes, after about five minutes of sitting, he knows about silence, too. Like, he knows how to sit in silence, or he knows how to listen. He's a great listener. And he said, you matter. And he got up and left. And I was like, man. You know, I mean, just matter. That's all he's you. That's all he said. Five minutes of silence. You matter. He didn't say my name. He didn't say anything. He said, you matter. Then I had appendicitis in 2010.
1: Wait, hang on before you get appendicitis. I want to get back to that. So right after he says to you, you matter, what hits you? Think about this for a second. I mean, like, think
2: about how much we forget in life. Like, I mean, so I've been working with him for since 2005, almost 15 years. I've been working with him for 20 as a, uh, you know, colleague. I went to school there for four years. So you're talking about almost a quarter century of being around this guy. And um, that's, I'll never forget that. I'll never think about that. Those two words, that guy, that spot, either I was so emotionally low and he was so magnetic that those things come together. But I remember being able to get off the mat emotionally and psychologically and be ready to go do my job and, and perform, perform my, what I was supposed to do as a strength coach, just by those two words. And he's been doing that. It's not,
1: you know, what? it's so funny. I asked Rob what it was like to be a part of all that success, to work with a legendary coach like coach Smith, a winning coach, and also to work with top level players. And I want to know if there were any pressures and challenges that came with it. So I was
2: a very good high school basketball player. Good enough to have a, the, 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 to get a college scholarship. I don't even talk like this is, this is the first time I I've, I've talked about my basketball career in in, in a decade or twenty years like if someone asked me about it i'll tell them I don't tell them about my accolades and my stuff because the most important sporting moment in my life was from two thousand and five f- to cut my teeth for those couple years to figure out what I was doing. then once I figured it out two thousand and seven then this 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 program goes on a run from two thousand and seven to two thousand and eleven. To 2011, excuse me, where we're literally we went two national championships and we are, we are the program that is – we are the standard in the country. And I felt at that time probably egotistically that I literally could produce miracles in the weight room just by thinking about it. Like I, I, felt, I felt that confident. You know, I've come to find out as I get older, I reflect, and when we started this discussion, I reflect on the platform and destiny and all those things. And it's certainly that kind of aspect of, as I look back on the way I used to think um, that I, I understand that that thought process wasn't exactly accurate. You know, I, I was kind of myopic at the time, uh, probably super egoed out at the time too, because it just seemed like whatever we were doing up there was just, was just, it just worked it was magical and i i took a very unorthodox approach to things listen we're we're dealing with a program that's produced like 30 guys that not just got drafted but are playing in the nfl so we had one team in 2009 that had 10 players in the in the nfl today or you know at some point that's mind blowing it's mind blowing i mean the quarterback the two running backs the wide receivers one of the offense your whole your whole backfield on offense, your whole skill set on offense, James White, who plays for the Patriots, Giovanni Bernard, the Bengals, Rashad Green, who was with Jacksonville for all, well, Phil Dorsett, number two draft choice, plays for the Patriots, Jake Rudock, who plays for the Dolphins, Brandon Leonard, $40 million contract with the Jaguars, flip the script, LaMarcus Joyner, Cody Riggs, LaMarcus Joyner, $40 million contract, Cody Riggs, uh, Marcus Roberston. I mean – I mean, 10 guys in the league. And we're not talking about guys who aren't performing in the NFL. And that team didn't win. That team didn't win a state championship. That's
1: funny. Man, you talk about James White, man. He was like the hero of the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, right? I mean, he was unbelievable. Yeah. And think about
2: James White's the backup feature back on that team. So think about that dynamic, that he is the backup. James White on one team. So we lose that game that we lose that year. And coach Smith comes off the field and terrorizes me in front of the whole team says, it's my fault that we lost says that um, says that uh, manatees kids were way better conditioned, And he always, so that's the point about coach Smith is he always knew when to beat you up, when to pick you up, when to love you, when to challenge you. And, Man, that next year we come out with a much lesser talented group of kids and we, we got after it. We got after the weight. We got after it in all aspects. That's why sometimes losing is the best thing that ever happens to you.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the challenge, the failure, you know. Uh, so two things come out of that for me. One is Coach Smith knowing how much to give you and what you can handle on, you know, you said he tore you apart right there in the midfield. He knew that was going to motivate you, not bounce. Yes. Right. So he knew exactly yeah. what he needed to say to you, which is, which is amazing. And then the second thing is, yeah, that failure being the motivating factor going forward for the next year.
2: Yeah. And it was the failure starting this whole thing.
1: Failure wasn't the only driving factor. Rob talks about how a culture of winning and success can also amp up the expectations.
2: So you have a kid coming in and they look around, they hear everything and they just expect that the St. Thomas name and brand is gonna make for wins. And um, so it's not that anything, anybody's doing anything wrong, it's the nature, it's the evolution of winning and losing and success and defeat, and sometimes being successful is your worst enemy, you know? And so I think right now where we're at in a program, and I'm not part of the program anymore, so I'm not taking pot shots at the program. I'm saying that um, I found that, wow, we would go 10 and one and we'd lose one game and everyone's like, you guys are the worst team in the universe. And I'm just like, we only lost one game. I mean, the standards get shifted, everything gets adjusted. So I find that success might be your worst enemy.
1: You know, and, and I want to kind of go in a little deeper on that too, because, you know, there's a, such a pervasive thing right now in, in our society, especially where, you know, this whole, everybody gets a trophy. Thing, this whole yeah. let's not give the kids too much challenge. Let's not put too much pressure on them. Everybody wins. Let's maybe not keep score. And what I'm getting from what you're saying is, it sounds like that you know is is even worse than I had perceived it. You know what I mean? Because I'm not a fan of it personally. I think that challenge and failure are what really build that character and that drive and that um, you know that that desire for success so how, how are you seeing it right now, just having kind of lived through that?
2: Um, that's a tough one because that's a tough one. And the reason I say it's tough for me personally is because people perceive the way I found success in where I was at, again, with the best platform on earth was um, I, I didn't take a I didn't I wasn't a traditional strength coach. I wasn't a killer-be-killed guy. I wasn't an in-your-face, I wasn't an in your face guy, but I was also I'm more of the Coach Smith school. But we had a lot of fun, man. I I brought a lot of gamification to to the workouts. Um I wanted to make things fun. I think that I personally think now that like you said, this everyone gets a trophy movement. I don't think that's the greatest threat right now in our society. I think the greatest threat in our society is that uh perfectionism and meritocracy and uh, not being allowed to fail and you know be, being thrown away when you do fail I don't think everyone should get a trophy but I, I don't think that uh, I mean I see the pressures of on our top kids in school I see the pressures on our top athletes they're definitely not being treated like kids anymore and so they're being treated like either young CEOs when you're talking about on the academic side which I'm certainly not a part of that side even though'm the part on the discipline side but I' Don't really know much about that world. But I know about the pressures of um, attempting to be an elite athlete in a football, in a sport like football, and the pressures the parents and the coaches and the media put on 15-year-olds. And when the, I just look at that, and I, think that's a, I think that's a greater threat than everyone gets a trophy. Honestly, I think I think, the, I think if you're playing sport and it's not fun, at some level, something's messed up. So, I don't know if that means everyone gets a trophy or whatever, but I think it has to be fun.
1: Rob is definitely someone who likes fun. In fact, he developed a unique training method to get his players in shape while having fun. He calls it gamification, and it includes things like having all out, full team, every man for himself, dodgeball games.
2: I, so, I'm, I'm, I'm split. I'm, I'm in opposition because I also like one of the best tools that we use. This is crazy. I would go to strength conferences because they would get invited because I'm St. Thomas, and they would say, "Well, what, what what works for you?" So I have a master's degree in exercise science, and I'd say, "What works for me?" The uh, uh, dodgeball. If you motivate your players with dodgeball, if you say, you, "If you work out hard, we're gonna play ten minutes of dodgeball," that that's gonna be the, the the biggest thing you could do in your program. And they would look at me like I have two two cucumbers coming out of my forehead, and I'd say, "Well, if I know you guys will never buy into this, but..." if you think about it for a second dodgeball is the one game that's it's egalitarian doesn't matter if you're james white or the fourth string kid you're not competing on who can bench press the most you're not competing on playing time right and it produces a flow state like you cannot imagine the flow state you can get in dodgeball which can be transferred back to the weight room so you're really Instead of working out sixty percent in terms of your effort, your mind and your body, so you're so excited, you're bringing that back to the weight room after being motivated to do that. Now I know I'm going all over the place. Some people say, "Wow, dodgeball is a sport of humiliation now and, and all this other stuff." Yeah, it can be if you're forced to play dodgeball. Yes, then I would say it's a bad thing. But if you if you volunteer to play because you enjoy it, and you're uh, you're fourteen or thirteen or whatever then I would say no. So I'm like, I'm not exactly saying giving trophies to every kid's a bad or a good thing. I think the greatest threat is the threat of false meritocracy and the pressures that were, listen, super capitalism transferred to the world of sports and kids is hyper runaway capitalism where kill or be killed, winner takes all. Is not, it's not healthy, man. Not healthy for team, I don't think. I know I went on a lot of different areas, but that's what I believe. So I don't, I, don't know. I, don't, I don't know if I'm with you on or I'm not with you on. I don't know where I stand for trophies for all. And I don't think that if you're seven years old that um, I don't necessarily think we should – maybe we shouldn't be giving out any trophies at all. Maybe we should be saying, go enjoy yourself. Play. I mean, play – when you talk about people who study the science of play, this is what kills me too, like in our society. The science of play creates more learning situation and lights up the, the learning centers of your brain, brain like nothing else. When you're animals play to learn how to, to learn how to hunt other species play with each other. And somehow in our society, this idea that if you play and you don't work, then it's at your detriment. I don't agree with that. Everything has to be in balance.
1: Not everyone in the strength training industry agreed with coach B. That happens whenever one man takes a bold step and does something unorthodox or against the grain.
2: I went to a conference with our track coach and I was doing the standard strength coach stuff just by the book, uh, by the numbers, what I learned in my program.
1: What, what like is that? Was, give, give me an example of what that is. I think you said something about something you wrote. I think it's about the savagery of being a strength coach or the. the yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Like, like they have this. It's like if you, if you meet strength coaches, it's like they're all. They're all the same to me. I had the benefit. This is where I feel like I, this is my strength. I had already coached a sport. I was a coach of a sport. I coached basketball. So before I got in the weight room became a weight room coach, I had actually coached a sport at the high school level. Um, and the advantages of that is the advantage I thought was, wow. Um, this is like the best of all worlds because I'm going to coach these guys in the weight room and really coach them, not, not be a dictator, but really coach them. And there's negative and positive consequences along those lines. Um, and so my, I think guys that just start out as strength coaches, I, I think they're my, me personally, I think they're at a disadvantage, right? Cause they don't understand like, I don't necessarily think they understand the needs of the people that they're working out, the psychological and emotional needs. And I think they just look at numbers. And Joseph Campbell has this great, great quote about computers and numbers. Joseph and I believe this a thousand percent. This is Joseph Campbell, the guy who studied myth, right? Yes. Joseph Campbell says that computers are a lot like old testament gods. Lots of rules, no mercy. And so So, when you get into like when you when when someone starts talking to me about numbers, and there, there is listen, proportionally, there is a place for numbers. But if man, if you're just gonna cut someone up into a number and not see the humanity in somebody, um, then you're making a big mistake. And that was Coach Smith. That's what Coach Smith taught me. And I, and then when I came back and listen to the beauty, the genius of Coach Smith, this is his genius. Somebody who doesn't play football, never been in a weight room, but not, not, didn't cut his teeth in a weight room as a traditional strength coach, comes back and says, "Hey, we're gonna be playing dodgeball and tag for man at that time in 2007, 30 minutes of 90 minute session," and he goes, "I'm cool with it, do it," and I'm like, "All right." We got to the point where in the mornings we would bring in the band, the high school marching band, and we would do skits, and we'd go play water polo, and we take him on um leadership uh there's those ropes courses and all these things that we were doing and that is where you get success because that is what binds people together. So if I'm if I'm dictating to someone telling them they have to do something and they do it because they're being forced to do it, they can fool me. They can go 60% and I won't know. But if they feel that they're connected to me and everybody else right then they're gonna go 110% because they feel socially obligated to do that. So once you feel that- It's a commitment to themselves and a commitment to- Yes, that's social capital. Like I think my personal belief is that a lot of strength coaches um, believe just in that uh, a certain do this, do that, certain metric, they don't buy into the social capital deal. And um, and I'm not saying you can't be successful doing it that way either, because there's plenty of guys who have done old school, or there's they, they they do it new school. They probably even do it worse now with the body monitors and all this other stuff. I'm not saying you can't do it that way. There's there's a zillion ways to skin this cat. I'm just saying my way was gamification, and and building a bond while adding that other stuff in, and kind of like. We get in, I get in philosophical discussions with other strength coaches where they'll, they'll be like, well, we're gonna, you, don't, you don't chart down what your players are doing in terms of uh, sets and reps. You don't write that down and what their weight is. And I'm like, no. And they're like, why not? I'll say because they're 14 to 18. And, and just to me to keep track of the, the pencils and the papers and to me to, to monitor that as one person in the weight room at that time is an is a impossibility. So I'm just not going, going to do that. I'm going to rely on them. They're going to be responsible for that. And I always found out, listen, nothing's perfect. You're going to get kids who don't do this or don't do that. But I always found out at the core, um, we had a lot of success. And and again, I say a number number of factors was the type of athletes we had, our coaching staff. But I always felt like if you watch our videos, you can see that if you watch my videos on gamification, you can see the joy that people are having. And that also means they're not dreading coming into the weight room. So imagine that situation where they're waking up at six o'clock in the morning and they're not feeling like, oh God, I have to do this because I want to play high school football at St. Thomas and I want to get a college scholarship, as opposed to, man, I can't wait to get to the weight room. So that's the that's where I thought. Um that's where I experienced, that's where I thought that I experienced uh, my most fulfillment, doing it that way as opposed to the what The other things I was saying, I would literally go to conferences, I'd bring my son, and my son would, could feel the negative energy, and the silence, and the lack of questions, I mean, I, I would really feel alone at these, diff- I got, listen, because of St. Thomas, I got to speak at University of Michigan, I got to speak at Alabama, I got to speak at USF, and um, so, yeah, he would say like that, everyone thinks you're ridiculous, and I'd be like, I am, you know? Yeah, thank goodness, but, right? Right, and, 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 I, and I've always said this, if I could turn that into a way of making money, if I could figure it out, if I could solve that riddle, that'd be, you know, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Cause if I could have fun doing that too, and I'm trying to do that with how far, how fast and end game adventures, I'm trying to solve the riddle that way. Cause I just don't, I'm not going to work in that traditional linear sense. Cause I just, I don't, I don't perform well in that deal.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think, um, going back to the gamification, you're looking at yourself you look at these kids it's like and i think i saw this in something that you wrote we were talking about you know football is a game yeah play football
3: play football
1: and if you're doing all this training and the metrics and guys are writing down numbers and you've got to achieve a certain percent growth over x days or time it's not a game anymore it's not fun anymore they're just you know they're like robots and machines they're like robots and
2: machines, and when you face another team that has spirit and passion, all things being equal, you're going to be at a disadvantage. Um, and I, oh, I've always said this. Listen, in, in the weight room, the weight room is not the game. Football is the game. Weight room is a way to give you – the weight room just gives you an inch. It really, truly does. The weight room doesn't – you could be great in the weight room and you could be terrible on the football field. The weight room is going to separate you just by a hair, but it's that hair that's going to make the difference. With some guys in the weight room, and I guess because it's, if, if you're a strength coach, that's your domain. And, again, that gets back to the coaching side of things. Like, I always was able to see the bigger picture. Like, my role is to prepare them to play football. There's no, there's no contest at the end of this where someone gets a scholarship or someone wins a state championship for the best weight room team. This is a team building deal, so I always felt like that too. So I didn't, I took it very seriously, but I always had that in the back of my mind that these guys are getting the worst thing I could think I could do is hurt somebody in the weight room, like because you have that potential. That would be such a tragic thing to get someone hurt in the weight room because they're not even playing the sport they're preparing for, and that's one thing why where where I, I was concerned about gamification too because although it has this tremendous power to develop a flow state, you're always – I've been through a few moments where I cringe because there, there was a broken thumb or there was a broken toe or there was a potential ACL. And as I got older, I really began monitoring things a lot more intense and cutting them off a lot sooner than I did when I was younger. You know, so we'll play 10 minutes of a game and I'll – like I used to have 100 guys on the small box before. And we would call no rules dodgeball, which means you could hit your own player or tackle somebody. This is early on, 10 years ago. And talk about a flow state. Talk about it being mentally fatigued when you think you're going to get tackled or your teammates going to throw a ball at you. It's your whole universe cracks open. You would walk out of that room and feel completely spent. Like, I would never do that now. That's like an injury waiting to happen.
1: Yeah. Tell me about um... – Flow state for you, being in the zone, flow state. And I think you even talked about hive mind at one point because that's, that's a unique perspective for a for a strength coach. I want to hear about that.
2: Man, it's like um, you could produce it through gamification, certainly there where everyone is like – everyone's focus and energy and attention is attracted to that one thing and everything. It's like, you know, time stops. You're totally caught up in the moment. You're totally in a state of uh, – joy um you're you're not thinking it's all this everyone all the ships are sailing in the same direction and you can bring that back into the weight room or you can produce it in the weight room especially when you get the impression so if we have a hundred seven to a hundred guys in our weight room at a time if you can start getting the impression it's it's like a contagion so if you have eight different stations or seven different stations and one guy's working hard over here and his station starts going really hard. And this station over here, this bench press station, this core station. And then pretty soon you find yourself almost like reflexively doing things, but not in a robotic sense, more of like in a, just like a, a pure giving sense, pure joy. And you know you're so connected to the people in that weight room. Um, and, and that's what I think that, that was my strength and able to create that environment, and that was done um, on accident at first and then intentionally later. And the way it was done is is you get the most popular – you take the most popular kids, and hopefully the most popular kids are good kids doesn't always work out. Hopefully the most popular and good kids are the leaders on the football team. doesn't always work out. And if you get them to buy in, getting back to that social capital and that positive peer pressure – then everyone starts buying in and it just ripples into your team and then before you know it you have 70 or 100 guys now there's going to be four or five guys off to the side who are not going to do anything regardless but you have a majority of your team just dialed and so you walk out of there you're drenched in water because you're sweating and you walk out of there and you look at each other and every you can see everyone look look at Everyone's looking at each other's eyes and you're, you're there, you're done. Boom. It's over, you know? And, and then getting back to the luck I'm dealing with world-class athletes at the same time. So I've never tried this. Listen, again, being fortunate, I, I could go to, I could go to South plantation, not that they have a bad program or some other school and, and do this and they might look at me like they might lose half their games and look at me like, get the hell out of here. But at that moment, at that time, with Coach Smith and those kids, wow! For me, like like the best moment in sports, besides my family, the best moment period in my life. You know, for for an extended period of time.
1: And now, this this flow, this zone, right, this hive mind. You know, you have it in the weight room. You got these leaders, these you know these star athletes, these leaders, the popular kids that are that are doing it. The ripple effect goes. How do you translate that onto the field during a game? Does that, does that, does it, are they so trained in that when they're in the weight room that they're still one mind and in the flow when they get to game day?
2: You know, I think I, I don't even know the answer to that question because I'm not involved. I don't go onto the football field. You know, So I don't know what the translation is. But here's what happens. I don't know if people are superstitious or something about success. I do know this. Like, you know, we, have, we just had Nicky Bosa get drafted number two in the draft. Okay, his brother, you know, him and his brother played on that same team in 2011. They were on the same team. Nicky as a ninth grader, Joey as a senior. And just think about this for a second. When you can get Joey Bosa, we're talking about Joey Bosa, who, by the way, is a fabulous human being. But when you get him on your side, right, it's hard to be opposed to Joey Bosa or John O'Corn, who plays at Michigan or a Scott Northcutt who I just worked out with or you get some kids, like you get – I won't call them no names, but a kid named Jonathan Boozer who played at Marist. This kid Boozer, he's like, a, he's like a younger version of Coach Smith. He's a teenage Coach Smith. If you get this kid to buy into what you're doing, the other kids – it's going to be really hard to be opposed to that. It's going to be almost impossible because you you don't want to be on the outside of that because, A, it's so much fun, and, B, like, the best thing for me is not those kids. The best thing for me is when a kid who's a four-string kid comes up and says, you know, the workout programs, I was depressed. They changed my life. I really felt like I was a part of something. And that's happened several times to me, and I've just been like, man, that makes me feel feel really good. So it's not just about for me, too. It wasn't just about, and I'm not saying this to make myself sound better because it's not just about the Joey Bosa's or the James White's. We're all fabulous kids. It's about, those, it's, it's about those other kids, too. And I think that's one of my things, too, is that the, the beauty of being a strength coach, if you want to call it beauty, if you can make it beautiful, is you get to treat everybody the same. So when I'm coaching basketball, unfortunately, there's only one ball. Only five kids can be on the court at the time. There's going to be at least two or three kids that don't play. It's a lot tougher to, to create that equality in a traditional coaching sense than in the weight room.
1: I want to ask you a couple things about, you know, building the champions. You said something about the awe of being. Yeah. Gamification. Tell me about that.
2: Well, okay, so I'm very eclectic, and one of the books that I came across in Barnes & Noble was this book called Star Wars and Philosophy, right? And so I opened it up, and they, they break apart Star Wars they use socrates they use plato they use buddhism they use um the Tao. they use uh everything under the sun to explain this whole thing with the jedis so there's this very famous controversial philosopher his name is martin heidegger okay so there's a lot of controversy about martin heidegger and martin heidegger talks about this this idea of that your purpose in life is just to be and the way you can experience the awe of being the best way you can do it is be in nature and be around oceans and mountains and waterfalls because nature reveals itself the way it wants to reveal itself. You're revealing yourself the way you are just naturally revealing yourself. And the purpose of life is just to be. So he calls it the awe of being. And the point is, is that he imagines that uh, in early nomadic societies, someone walking out of their cave and seeing just this kind of like, overwhelming nature, the birds that block out the sun, the, the forest, the trees, this pristine uh, state of nature. And that in itself was just overwhelming and caused, it caused you to really be alive. Okay. So then he says that we've forgotten that. And the reason why we've forgotten that is we started to frame things. So you take forests, you turn them into two by fours, they lose that all of being. You start in fr- like everything in this office is in framed. Everything was a natural product that was turned artificial. It lost its awe of being and it was replicated. Martin Heidegger says the whole world is turning into essentially a ball of metal or glass. And what happens then is he says, once people, for like, listen, you could go through your whole life if you drive on 95 and you go to work and you go home and never experience the awe of being because you're in a, an environment where there is no, nature's not revealing itself the way it's intended to. So when, his, his theory is that when everything's in framed, people, listen, being is forgotten. And, but, but there's something, even though being is forgotten, there's something that's missing, there's something that everyone feels that they're missing. What they're missing is being, but they've never seen or experienced before. So they don't even know what they're missing, but there's something missing. They just can't put their finger on it. And then his last final idea in this book anyway is only God can save us from that. And so I don't remember what I wrote in context of the book of all being, but I think we're all certainly um, nature in terms of our nature. And so when you're, when you're around when you're doing something like that's natural, like I think, I think sports is natural. I think working out in the weight room is is a, is a human being event,
1: right? As opposed to you know, competition is natural too, right?
2: Yeah. Because so leagues,
1: it's just striving, pushing. All of those things are natural. Yeah, it's just it's just this natural state, um, and so you can
2: be awed by that, and that's what that's what I that's what I hope to replicate, and that's certainly the pull for my adventure travel business is that it's not, it's not me. It's, it's, it's Costa Rica. You know what I mean? That you can, I guess some people like I have, a, I have one client who's like, I know I'm switching subjects to the of being, but I have one client is like, no, I'll put it this way. I have one client who went to Croatia and we had, we suffered. We went through all these experiences in nature and he's like, he had the money and he's like, Rob, I just want to stay at the Four Seasons in Prague, and I was like, "Who's going to turn that down, Eric?" I was like, "Sure, let's stay at the Four Seasons." As soon as we stay at the Four Seasons, our adventure shut down. Mm-hmm. We had there was no yeah. It was nice. The beds were nice. The food was unbelievable. But as far as the memories, no, because I think Homer says this is that when he wrote, uh, you know, the the Odyssey, that at some point in your travels you find some kind of comfort in your struggle. You know, it's the struggle that makes the, the, the travel worthwhile. It's, that's what you come, and you, you start to enjoy that. And so I have one client who wants to go to Costa Rica with me, but he wants a four-season experience. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, you don't want that. I mean, you think you do, but you don't. He's, he's used to being, you know, sleeping in a nice bed. And, doing all, and I'm not suggesting we go full-on tenting in the rainforest. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't want, he's, he has a hard time, understanding the benefit of
1: nature and being around nature, you know? You know, and I would think that um, it's it's that challenge and some of the, the most challenging things in the awe of being where you connect even stronger. If everything's just comfortable, I mean, think about all your experiences. All the comfortable stuff and the things that just kind of, you know, went easy and okay are not, for me anyway, as memorable as, hey, remember that time we hit yeah. this and we had to do that? That's what forges that, yes, you know, that, that that team, that connection, that connection. That connection can go a step further, just like in the Marines. There was a point where the Saint Thomas football team adopted a next man up mentality, that led them to victory under incredible adversity.
2: And so I worked for three different head coaches: Coach Smith, who's my mentor, Rocco Casulo, and then Roger Harriet. Roger Harriet coming in on that season, I'm not, I think that was his first – I'm not sure if it was his first or second season. I, I, don't, I don't remember. But Utah, and it, he's the one really primarily responsible for this idea of the next man up. But I'm the one who kind of, like, observed it and witnessed it and saw the – I saw the power of a story. And I saw 17- I saw and 18-year-old kids, 16- to 18-year-old kids buying into it. And then I saw the coaching staff buying into it. And then it, it, it was just so phenomenal that the more the more um, adverse situations we were in, it was like this book, Anti-Fragile, by uh Caleb. Nick, he's a he's a modern day philosopher, and it, it, our anti-fragility. We weren't robust because robustness is when um, you're kind of impervious to struggle. You're 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 able to kind of like stand your ground against it. We were anti fragile in the sense that the more adverse, we, we became stronger than we were after the adversity. We came out the other end stronger where you would have, it, was, it wasn't like a, 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 a virus inoculation. It wasn't like I'm going to give you the flu, a little dose of the flu virus, which is going you know, to protect you from the flu virus. It was like getting a dose of the flu shot that made you uh, not get the flu, but not get sick anymore at all. So everything that happened, and it was based purely, purely on belief. It was like, no, we're screwed now. Nicky Bosa went down. This is not going to work. That's it. Then Roger Harry did a great job selling it. Then somebody else went down. He sold it again. We had JV players playing on that team at the end, and we were doing better than when we had. And this is no offense that – listen, I'm very fond of Nikki and I have a great relationship with him. I'm not sure if we were doing better with him off the field, but I'm just saying we were performing at a very high
1: level. So everybody stepped up is what had to happen, right? You hit the adversity and guys had to step up at that point.
2: Yeah, and it was a special year. You're not, you're just not gonna see that every year with every team. Like that was a that was great to be a part of. To be, you know, talk about the hive mind, being in the locker room before some of these games. Like you can actually be in a locker room during games and their big games and you can almost be like thinking about something else and not dialed in but in that year when we we're in the playoffs i can remember being i mean it was almost like sticking your foot everyone had stuck their foot in the sand in the ground and they're psychologically saying not one inch we're not going to move one inch from this from where we're at no matter what happens we're not giving any ground and everybody believed in this at some point there were doubters doubter doubter i doubted I thought to myself when this first started happening, like, all right, this isn't going to work. This is just, this is just coach talk. And then it started, and then I was the biggest believer in it. So that's Roger. That, I think, I think I, I'm not sure if I write that down. I'm much credit. I give Roger or myself, but I think that was more Roger than, uh, that, 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 I, that idea is the power of a story.
1: Right. He was telling the story. He got them to buy in the hive mind went right. And yeah. It Ripple that from there.
2: It just became it became that synergy where two plus two is not four, two plus two is a thousand. You know, it just it was one of those moments. Man, if you could, we were able to harness it for those five or six or seven weeks. Um, If you could harness, if you could really find a way to tap into that um, all the time, that's that would be the end game.
1: Right, that's the magic right there. Right, just getting that people to buy into that story. Yeah, moving forward, and I think part of it too, from from listening to you is. As these guys were buying in and as you started seeing, even if they're little victories, like, wait a minute, we just did that. And then it just, boom, you go to the next level because you've got this buy-in, this belief, and then you have the evidence of it and everything starts driving forward. you're absolutely right. And the
2: best example of that is this kid named R.J. Gene, who was subbing, I think, for Nick Bosa. So he was Nick Bosa's sub, I believe. He goes, okay, Nick Bosa goes down. We're playing the biggest game of the year with with not our – I don't believe it was our starting qu- – yeah, with our second-string quarterback. This kid, RJ Jean, goes down against Flanagan, and he dislocates his, his, his elbow. His, his, the, the lower part of his arm was, like, at a really bad angle. Like, he had really messed up his arm, right? Wow. So imagine this vision, though. This terrible injury happens. Right in, front of our, right in front of our bench, Hunter guys. They bring out the ambulance and the stretcher. They put RJ on the stretcher. Every single player went out and circled the stretcher and walked him off the field. Like, that doesn't happen. That doesn't – that's why that team was special. That's why that story was special. They all followed him out because they all were like, man, next man up. I love you, brother. Now we're going to get ready to play football. Wow, that's pretty emotional, man. That's a, uh, had to be now, beautiful to watch. I, I, I'll ne- you know, I've seen, I've, I've been around a ton of situations like that where it's like, oh, we got a guy down. Okay, the head, the standard head coach goes out, players take a knee, blah, 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 blah. But this time, that's how dug in we all were. That's that hive mind where we're just like, all right, let's circle up. So that was literally circling the, the stretcher instead of the wagons. That was a brother, now it's time to, to take care of business with these guys. How did that game end up for you? We ended up – that we were underdogs in that game. That was Flanagan. They had a, they had a, a, the kid was a linebacker. I forget his name. He played in Michigan. I think his dad was the – I don't know. His dad was the head coach. They were ranked ahead of us in everything. We had a second-string quarterback. We had injuries everywhere. Um, and we ended up beating, beating Flanagan that year. Wow. You know, we ended up just rolling through the playoffs. That was a great – I think that was Roger's first year. And then Roger is a Roger's another exceptional, exceptional coach. Um, he's a different style than Coach Smith. Um, Roger cares way, way more about people and the human being and the spiritualness of his players than he even cares about winning, which is a credit to him because you can get caught up in that whole winning thing, yeah. especially at St. Thomas. St. Thomas, getting back to the power of the story, St. Thomas is a story. So – when you walk on the field at St. Thomas, the story is, win. Or you're supposed to win. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It can also be your biggest detriment, like we talked about before, the much success, where every team you play, when you're St. Thomas football, it's going to be their Super Bowl. They could lose every game and beat you, and that would be the highlight of their, their lifetime sports career.
1: Right here, with all this talk of winning, Rob told me something he learned from Coach Smith about success.
2: Success might not be. It's uh, the, the journey. And I know it's cliche, but the journey to success, I think, is a lot better than the success. Because the success is very lonely at the top. You get there. This is Coach Smith again, too. This is Coach Smith teaching me about success. So he has an experience when he's a kid. He's a, it's, it's unbelievable, this guy. This guy has so many great life. He was a spelunker, cave guy. So he went on this spelunking deal with his with his class or this guy that did that taught him spelunking. I think that's the term. So the goal was to get to the series of caves, to get to the end cave in Indiana, so he would have arrived. So when he got to that end cave, end cave, he really felt like, man, I can't wait to get there. I'm so excited. This is gonna be so great. And so he got there and he tells his story, and he gets there and there's trash everywhere. There's 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 cans of coke there's it's just this cave and it's the end and he thought it was going to be like this kind of like spiritual experience and it was just like
1: angels waiting for him yeah and
2: and that didn't happen all he talks about that all he would talk about that with me all the time about uh you know it's really a tough staying it's a lot it's a lot more fun getting to the top and the top isn't really what you think it is you know coach smith has another great life lesson called the tar pit truest thing in the world, he goes, you know, the, you, when you're in the tar pit and there's other people in the tar pit with you and you th- and you think that they're your friends and they're, they, they support you, trust me when I tell you that some people will be glad if you make it out of the tar pit, but a lot of the people you consider your friends as you're making your climb out of the tar pit will pull you back in because they fear nothing more than you making it out and them staying in the tar pit. And so, I mean, there's just one story after another with this guy that he can relate to, to motivate you or make you understand people. Coach Smith's also a type of guy, too, that would, I mean, he would call people like that. They didn't even know that well. If he found out that your mother was sick or your daughter had an operation, he's on the phone, personal call. Coach Smith, heard about your situation. You know, what can we do for you? Do I know somebody? So this a just a great, great person to, to, to learn from.
1: Yeah. It sounds like a lot of, um, well, yeah, first of all, I agree with that. And then second, you know, the story of the cave for me, what it brings up is when you tell that story, it's how amazing going through all the caves to get to the end is. Yeah. And it's the journey that the we journey. tell the stories about the journey that we remember. It's the journey that forges us. And if you can just continue to journey forward, and there is no there, right, and that's where life becomes beautiful, right? Because you're not right, right. looking towards an end where you go, oh shit, now I'm here, and what do I do now? It's if you have that continual drive to keep going, keep setting yeah. goals, keep moving forward. That's the beauty of all of it, right?
2: Yeah, and that's being alive. Because once you arrive, you're kind of like, what are you gonna? You're gonna stagnate. I I think you're gonna stagnate. So, and I've seen that. The best years we've had. In, in my opinion, is when we've lost. So my, my best year was after the 05-06 loss in the state championship. My best year was 07. My best, one of my best years was after the loss of nine,
1: was 10. After the loss of 11, 12. I want to know for you, for you, what motivated you all these years on the team? Was it the winning in the championships or was it the men that you were coaching and, and watching their success and their growth, their journey? I think the
2: initial motivation was, St. Thomas is a football school. Coach Smith is a very magnetic person. So I can clearly remember that I was the second choice. And um, I don't know. At times, I'm not competitive at all. But at times, I am. And uh, that was one of those times in that conversation with Coach Smith, I can remember like it was yesterday. And, and that initial meeting, we had known each other for years, but it was kind of like this knowing of, I don't know, this is a basketball guy or we got a team coming in and get off the court, you know, type stuff. I always respected him, but I didn't really know him, know him. So when we sat down for that initial meeting, it got, it got fairly intense and I don't even know why it got so intense. I just know that it did. And I just said like, listen, I don't know, you know, cause he's a very motivational guy and he got inside me emotionally. And I said, look, if we don't win, you can fire me, right? And I said it just like that, and um, and I think we hit it off from there. And we were, you know, I was his sidekick for those years. So uh, what you, you asked me what the juice was? The initial juice was the, you know, working for a guy like Coach Smith, and then the other thing was like learning, like learning your craft, like learning it on the fly. So it was the it was the the, the quest to learn. And then after the Coach Smith, the quest to learn, the quest to beat Lakeland. And then once we started having success, honestly, it was like, wow, this power that you feel of you can walk into a weight room and kind of like control this energy. um, That was pretty magical. You know, so I I think it was a number of things. I think it was learning your craft, working with a guy like Coach Smith, being tutored becoming the mentor of, of, or the mentee of your, of one of your future players. Um, and then the success, you know, and then wanting to keep it going.
1: So you know? it, it evolved. So in other words, you know, the, the motivation for you evolved over the years, which is great, right? Because it wasn't just one thing. As yeah, you man, achieved that yeah. first part, then it evolved into, this is now my new motivation for this.
2: And Eric, you're really, I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but you're really, you're wanted. You're a wanted person. How good is, like, when getting back to Coach Smith, you matter. You know what I mean? I really felt like like I mattered to the players. They matter to me. I matter to the program. I felt really fully invested in that deal. And that's a nice feeling. You know what I mean? That's a really cool feeling when, when parents will pay you compliments, or players look up to you, and you're having an impact on players, and 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 all those other things are happening—the winning, the the recognition—I mean, it's like the perfect storm of what you would want if that's what you're into.
1: I mentioned at the beginning that Rob has an adventure travel company, which he'll tell you is incredible, since he was never an outdoor guy. But he found what he gets out of it, and what the players get out of it, is powerful.
2: You know, I went to University of Alaska at Fairbanks. That's where I graduated from. And honestly, Eric, I got in a car and just drove there. So I have these moments of just either stupidity or whatever it is where I just decide I'm going to do something and I'm just going to go do it. I went there for no rhyme or no reason. I got in my car, drove to New- Alaska and graduated from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in 1989. So I, after the 2007 season, which was like an unbelievable season, it was, we won the state championship. I was like, you know what? I've never really done this outdoorsy thing. I've never hiked or I've never white water or I've never really camped, even though I went to Alaska. I I researched the five most beautiful waterfalls on Earth. And there's this waterfall called Havasu Falls in Arizona. And I was like, you know, let me bring out the three guys in the team who were like the leaders of the team. And um, we had the we had the unbelievable most adverse experience. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have enough water. We all suffered. We all got cramps. We all messed up on the hike. But at the end of it, we agreed it was the best thing that we had ever experienced. And so that led to another hike back there. It led to a snow-shoeing trip in New Hampshire. And I said then I said to myself in 2010, you know, I've never surfed. Then I said, okay, well, I'm going to do a surfing trip. And so moms heard about it. And then they sent 10 kids with me on a surfing trip. And then... So out of the 30 trips, 23 have been to Costa Rica. And then I went from a surfing trip to Costa Rica is an excellent location for this concept of all being because it has rainforests. It has cloud forests. It has volcanoes. It has the best surf in the world in terms of consistent surf. It's, it's close enough. Uh, it's two and a half hours away. but It's far enough away but also close enough away. The Pacific side, it's, I wouldn't say it's Americanized. There's a lot of expats and certainly there's American influence there. So that um I got the opportunity there to take these kids and my own kids, but one of the deals with Endgame Adventures is one of my kids, sorry about that. <laughs> Scooby, one of all of my kids in my family, every single family member except with the exception of a couple, have gone on an adventure. So either my son or my daughter or my wife. I've always, depending on the numbers, I've always been able to accompany me. So surfing is the same thing. If you talk about a high mind, all being, flow state, thank God no one introduced surfing to me at seven or eight. I'm a terrible surfer, but just being in the water is hypnotic. Also, when you watch someone you care about surf and they, they catch a wave, you're, you're able to share in that wave. The effect of surfing Afterward, when you get out of the water, is this kind of it's an afterglow. I can see. I mean, I think surfing has these stereotypes that are um, that are misrepresentative. Some are true. I mean, they're whatever they probably like to smoke marijuana or whatever they like to do or, and hang out. But a lot of it is because surfing in itself, because of the awe of being, because of the connection you have with nature, because of the connection you have with your fellow surfers. That's the drug of surfing. And that's really the drug of being in the in the rainforest. That's the drug of uh, doing yoga on a mountaintop. Um, it's just it's, a, it's it's
1: unbelievable place. Tell me about some of the things that, like you and the players, have gotten out of these trips. So it turned out
2: it started out just to a players just just players. Mm-hmm. Um, then it morphed into anybody who wanted to go. Obviously. Um, wow, you, you talk about a a connection. That's another thing where you establish these connections with people. Like when you're doing this incredible hike in a rainforest that's grueling and desolate and you're going to see like a toucan or these other, I forget the name of the other colorful birds flying across or just an empty desolate beach. It is, it will connect you like, like no other, you know? So like one of my buddies, we just got back from last summer. We did a, we rented a refurbished 1986 VW camper van. And he is he's, he's more my friend, but he is a client. It's a, it's a, that's what happens. Your clients become your friends. And um, we have moments on the road in the Julian Alps, just driving it and the struggles of driving it, but the beauty and the, the back and forth between each other about who's doing what's right and who's doing what's wrong and where we're going to camp and, and then the eating of different foods and, or we were in Vietnam the year before that on the, the border of China and we rented these bikes and I flipped the bike, you know, I mean, so it's just these incredible moments and connections that you're literally your brothers at that point, or your fellow adventure travelers, if it's a, if it's a a member of the opposite sex, you know, you're just connected through these.
1: Rob then told me a story of how travel and challenge can form connection, even in the jaded click driven world of high school.
2: Okay. So, uh, the so-called popular kids all signed up. And then there was this one student who wasn't in their group. And before they came to me, they were all like, coach B, do not let this girl go on a trip. And I was like, First of all, I'm not going to do that because she's just a kid to me. Second of all, let's just see what happens. She goes on this trip, this particular student they didn't want on the trip, and they they went as not friends, and they all came back as friends, and I attribute that to Costa Rica, the mountains, the volcanoes, the rainforest, the surfing, the horseback riding, the just – your – Costa Rica – and nature will heal most relationship problems or or enhance or connect people like like nothing else like nothing else
1: yeah i'm going to take it even deeper than that <clears throat> it can also be the experience of that and experiencing things together yes even if you're not close not a friend just having that experience with another human being yep. connect you in ways like you've never experienced before. Like I'm not a good surfer and I don't know if you surf or not, but I have, I've, I've taken some lessons. I've done it. Uh, I had some good experiences with it and I had some challenging experiences with it, which I guess is great.
2: Right. So well, Let's say we went out to some small waves in hot gun and It was just me and you and we're just meeting for the first time, like face to face here. And we were to do that. um, I think that would connect us and it would be, a, I mean, depending on a, the day, but on a typical day in Hako with the, with the, with the, with the um, waist high waves, if we decided, and when we had lunch later or whatever, it would just be a great, great experience and a great day. And I think water does, I think there's a magical property in water. I think there's a magical property to the ocean. I think harnessing the ocean with your, with your board. And I think doing that together, like, I don't understand, like, I never really understood doing stuff alone. Like when this single player video game craze hit a while ago before the internet kind of brought people together and tore us apart, like my son would bring home these games and they'd be single player games not connected to the internet. I'm like, why would you want to play with experiences with somebody else? I don't understand people who travel alone unless they're traveling to connect with other people. Like that, if I would've this, did this trip by myself, instead of going with my, with my buddy to Croatia or Vietnam, I, I wouldn't have gotten the same trip because I can come back and, and, and we'll always be
1: connected. This is where Rob gets into his trip to Vietnam and the Cobra story I mentioned earlier. He and his buddy had just visited the Hanoi Hilton, had a very emotional experience. And then they decided to do something that led them to a bonding experience, not only with each other, but with men from a completely different culture.
2: So in the middle of this, me and my buddy are looking at each other and he's like, hey, I was just on TripAdvisor and there's this thing called the dragon, Hung Lee's Dragon Snake House. Would you eat the heart of a a mountain cobra? Right? He said it's like a national, it's like a part of their cuisine. So I'm like, yeah, let's go. They, they, They bring you in. They're like, do you want the the, the the one that was trapped out in wild or do you want the one that was manufactured on the farm? Do you want the bamboo snake or do you want the wild mountain cobra? So I was with a buddy who could afford the wild mountain cobras. they defang it, right? And they gut it right there and they take the heart out while still beating, they snip it, put it in the shot glass, heart's still beating, okay? They put something else in there like corn wine and you hit it, but you're not done. Then you hit the blood of the mountain cobra and you're not done. Then you hit the bile. So you're, you're, yeah, so you're like, so that's a, and then you have all these Vietnamese, so you're in someone's family room essentially, it looks like that to me, this restaurant. But on the other side of this glass window, you have these, and this is a this is a delicacy in yeah. Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It's probably an is, honor
1: too, right? Like it's probably a big deal to do
2: it's this. It's a big deal for them, it's an aphrodisiac as well. And so you have these men, On the other side of this where they're butchering the snake and they're pressed up against the window to see these gigantic americans do this and it's it's a little touristy too i mean you'll see on their website whatever um but when we got done and and, first of all to to drink the bile i was like is this okay my buddy's like hit it hit it and the guy's name is dragon he's reassuring me it's okay i do it i think my mind gets some kind of intestinal disease we go into the other room where the, other, the, the Vietnamese are and um, they, they butcher the rest of the cobra and they bring it out in, in, in these different cobra dishes. And I was looking at our two tour guides as I was, I was eating most of it. My friend Bubba wasn't eating that much of it. And they were literally looking at this food like they hadn't eaten in, in a week. And I was like, "Fung, do you, do you want some of this? And he's like, oh, my God, that'd be, I haven't had snake in two and a half years because they consider it an aphrodisiac and a delicacy, and it's expensive, right? So they were, like, so honored to eat this cobra with us. And then the table over, they went into a state of just pure excitement. I mean, they were touching us and grabbing us to the point where I had to put a chair between myself and another dude because they were so excited that we were doing this, and it was a different culture, and everyone was
1: laughing. I brought this story up in one of our roundtable meetings, and the guys jumped into a discussion of pushing boundaries and living boldly. You'll hear me first, followed by RJ, and finally Doug, an attorney, who talks about how the story inspired him. Those are the stories men love to tell. It's the stories of courage, it's the stories of breaking the habit of not wanting to you know, do whatever, and it's the stories of... Overcoming that fear and or doing it anyway. Pushing God. yourself. And now you're right. speaking but, but,
3: of the male psyche. The, right. the, the very core of the male psyche is to push boundaries yeah. and move beyond the terrain. And those are the
1: things we want to tell each other. This whatever is the boundary the I push? Is, what boundary did you Whether
3: push? the terrain is a football field or a new expedition to the North Pole or a man on the moon right, or. Self-mastery the of your inner self. Yeah. When I hear that story, I just feel in myself, I just got to change my expectations of myself. That's a yeah. whole new, I may not go <laughs> right, have yeah. a heart, but wow, that's, yeah. that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to live yeah. expansive. Bold. Yeah.
1: Bold. Yeah. These are the type of stories that we love telling each other. And as Doug just proved, these are also the stories that inspire us to go out and have our own adventures and push our own boundaries. This is what drives us to excel. Here's Rob again about what the experience meant to him.
2: And so uh, my point in telling you that about travel is that that was just a spur-of-the-moment decision. And we, all of a sudden we find ourselves in a snake restaurant and I'm, and, and I'm doing this. And, we'll, and then we're, we're putting on social media and all of all, all our friends are laughing. And so that was a great moment. That's a great travel moment for me. We'll never forget that. It, it, what we will forget is the four seasons.
1: I mean, that's what I was going to say is, like, here's these experiences where, you know, getting back to the Cobra restaurant. Yeah. such a bonding there, right? I mean, it oh. was, I mean, you and your buddy, you and the chef the people that were in the other room watching all of this. I mean, just that coming together, you don't get that with room service.
2: No, you don't get that with room service. You don't get that with, with really anything.
1: There's a term Rob uses life hits. He mentioned this to me in one of our earlier conversations and, uh, there are moments when an experience smacks you in the head and you see something in a totally new way. And, uh, he explains them here.
2: I, I always talk about these life hits that you get, right. And they come like in these, um, man, it's super hard to put into words. It, it could happen at any time. It could happen in the weight room when you're totally exerting yourself and you get in that high mind and you become, you're doing the activity, but then there's the awareness and it leaves this impact on you. And, and so, so I'm, I'm, I'm constantly on the lookout for these like life hits and you can get them in. You can really get them in the world of sports when you're, very immersed in it, and you can get life hits in the world of adventure travel. And um, man, when they appear, like okay, like as in, for instance, the first time I ever rode down the face of a wave, I've been surfing, and I'm always catching the white water and just riding it in. And they're always like, "Rob, do you want?" When you get the wave, that's when you get the power. So the first time you get that, you're just like, "Wow, this is that kind of life hit that you get from that kind of experience." But it can happen in the weight room with your team. Um, so that's 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 what I that's why I specifically meant by the hit.
1: I asked Rob if he likes to take risks. Yeah, jumping off jumping off
2: jumping off waterfalls um, in Havasu Falls is is a, a life moment when you get that courage to to do that. You know what I mean? Um, so that's another. It's it's weird. I'm not. I, I guess I was the kind of kid too that was afraid of lakes and afraid of the woods and never did any of this stuff. I started doing this stuff in my 40s. Uh, again, I don't profess to be any good at it at all. I profess to, I, I actually enjoy the struggle. And some sort, maybe that's a sick sort of thing, but not, not, actually, not at all, man. Not at all. I mean, the struggle is everything, right? I actually get giddy and laugh during these moments of, 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 of um, I wouldn't call it stress, but exertion. I wish you know one of my shortcomings is this. When I say where I've been very weak is in I've never I've I've been able to step off and just drive to Alaska. I've been able to say you know what I've never hiked before. I'm gonna go on this ten hike with no experience. I've never been to Vietnam before. I'm gonna plan the trip and just get on a plane and go. I've been able to do all those things. The one thing that's eluded me is the ability to start a successful business. And that's the one thing at 51. And I, I think that's alluded to a lot of people. I know that the failure rate of business is a lot, but, uh, and also I make the excuse of I'm working full time at my job and blah, blah, blah. So I don't, at one point I considered Endgame game adventures a business, but if I was to be honest with myself, does it make money? Absolutely. Could I support myself, my family? Absolutely not. So I think the bottom line was that it was this hobby, you know, that I have that, that, that I'm kind of sad about in a way because I, I thought I, I think, I I think I was ahead of the, the travel market in 2008 and now it's like, I look around and because of my hesitancy, um, travel is exploding. The mm-hmm. travel culture, it's just exploding right now. I think mm-hmm. that I was like, had this idea, um, and was willing to do it. I just wasn't willing to leave my job and say, I'm going to take money out of my house or take a bank loan and, live on credit cards and go around and sell, you know, I took the easy road because it was all people I knew in my network.
1: So it's interesting. Cause you know, the, the risk taking you're talking about was okay to jump off a waterfall. It was okay to eat the beating heart of a Cobra. It's okay yeah. to, you know, do the, the bungee jump. But when it comes to geez, I'm going to take a financial risk and go after my dream of owning my own business, having yes. this drive you kind of took a step back and I think a lot of men do that a lot of people in general, but you know, a lot of men do that. It's that, that whole, you know, I'm not going to go that far
2: completely. And you know, what's funny is like um, where I was able to go, I mean, I took some chances in, in the strength and conditioning program with gamification and pushing people and pushing myself and kind of, you know, leaving my family behind for those for a couple of years while I was totally focused for no money. I mean, the, I mean, you get money, but the money there is not, you know, you're doing it for the passion. Um, and put myself in some adventure situations, um, you know, definitely paddling out in some ways that I had no business being in. Um, but I've always, but I was willing to do it and take the chance. Whereas in a business sense, I feel like once I get ready to reach that, that stage, a that jumping off stage, like in bungee jumping, whereas if I was bungee jumping, I would just go. I get confused and disoriented. I feel like the walls are closing in. I feel like uh, somebody's handing me eight different options or 20, and I don't know which to choose. And I end up just stopping movement.
1: After talking about risks, facing challenges and having the ultimate success, I wanted to know what advice Rob had on success and on being successful for us.
2: What I would tell people is care about other people see things from their perspective listen to them and be in it for the long term and i I think if you if you take i just gave you probably too much but if you take a long-term approach and you really make your best attempt to understand people from their perspective and care about them on their terms then that's what i find in my world where I've had the most success as an educator, a coach, and in my hobby, Endgame Adventures.
1: Caring about people, caring about their, their growth, their experience, their moving forward? I think I've done that
2: reflexively in my, in, in, in my work with my players and the people when want to invest. I've always understood them. So I think that – oh, excuse me, I have not always understood them. I've always tried to understand them and their perspective and what they need not what i think they need at least not that i would give them what they think but understand it because mm-hmm. a lot of times if you understand somebody and you can reiterate your understanding of them but you make another decision that they don't agree with they're they're okay with it they're okay with you doing something else as long as they as long as they feel like they've been heard and you actually listened to them and you actually understood what they were saying then they're okay with it
1: Okay, so that, that would be it then, right? You know, continue long-term, right? Get into their world, make it about them long-term. Long-term, and, and,
2: and that's going to require you to be passionate about something.
1: Right, so it's long-term
2: vision for yourself as well. I would say that do the thing that you're – always do the thing that you're afraid of. Whatever it is that you fear, do it uh, because – and it's not what I've learned because I, I, I haven't done that yet. Ultimately, I haven't done that yet. Like, I've, like honestly, I'm kind of like um, the success that I have had in my life. I'm kind of tickled by it because I've always found a workaround. I, I've always found a way to hide, to practice, then to pop out and just look like I'm a natural at things. I've always had that ability. But that's also been a weakness too because now that I'm looking at it, well, geez. I was definitely afraid of public speaking um, when I was first hired as the dean. I used to hide from it, make excuses, do this, do that. But I was forced to do it. And now I feel very comfortable speaking uh, publicly. Um, Why didn't I just do that from the very beginning? Why didn't I just, because I was afraid. If I would have known I would have had that skill at whatever, 30 or whatever, I would have, I could have done so, I I left a lot of potential on the table. So I think doing the thing that you fear is going to help you maximize your potential because you're going to get, if you do it enough you'll realize that the fear was there was no basis for your fear that fear was all inside of you
1: i wanted to talk about the fear and about jumping in and challenging yourself so i went back to the round table you're going to hear from alex first he's a retired marine who now trains people in his warrior workshops and then rj will follow up with his thoughts
0: get into intensity of motion intensity of challenges and drive yourself because everyone just takes you to that next level yeah. it's and this is intensity of uh, emotion is what the world is
3: running from absolutely today. well it, it, it I feel like well, we're, we're training people nowadays the opposite of courage we're training exactly. people in cowardice yes and what why, why do I say that we're telling people to try to avoid pain right. or absolutely. challenges or things that hurt their feelings yeah. yes other yes. society and that's making weak people with low character because exactly. characters develop how? How would you challenge say? yourself? Challenge Take, yourself and grow, right? and grow, exactly. And grow beyond your terrain.
1: At this point, John, who is an avid kiteboarder, talks about pushing his comfort level in snowboarding.
0: Let, let me just share a, a, this is a personal story. and What's coming up for me is the training yourself and purposely going into places that are uncomfortable. So when I was about 25, Um, I've been snowboarding for many years. I think I'm really good, and I have an opportunity to go to Alaska and basically go up into the mountains, point where you want to go, you get dropped out of the helicopter, and you go. It is raw. It is a tough environment. Avalanches, rocks, cliffs, everywhere. The first few days, I did not want to get back on that helicopter. I was scared out of my mind. Every turn I made, I'm afraid the whole thing's going to release I'm going to get buried in an avalanche, and I just kept going and going and going, and by the fourth, fifth, sixth day, I was finally able to relax, and I can feel what you're saying about the training, and f- feeling that fear, and just keep on going and keep on going. Mm-hmm. And that was a big thing for me as a young kid in this, it, forget about the snowboarding, it didn't have anything to do with that. It was put myself into situations where I'm totally uncomfortable, scared out of my mind, but I keep going back and doing it and doing it until that. Oh, yeah, there, there,
3: there's a theme there right. that... that. What must be done has to become more important than the fear or intensity of emotion. Right.
1: There is no question pushing ourselves, challenging ourselves leads to incredible growth. And as men, you can see the value in pushing against the envelope every day. And finally, I asked Rob how mentoring 70 young football players differs from raising his own son. I wanted to know if he was Coach B at home with his son as well. How did you see it when you were working with the football teams? I mean, this is 70 plus guys, young men, that you've got to have thinking one thought, one goal, one thing. I mean, what did you see in there and the camaraderie with them that the sports actually built this kind of bond among men and this growth among men? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that dynamic because,
2: listen, what the kids in that weight room got was genuinely me. But since my son was with me through this whole journey, because he either went to school across the street, my son actually went to St. Thomas. My son would see the coach be at home and he would be like, where is this magnetic, charismatic, motivating guy? Or is it all just BS, dad? Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm not saying it was, I was on when I was at, I was at work. And, um, and I, I know I, I, didn't forget the question I heard the question but I was thinking about my son and the dynamic between how you're not able to like I'm, I'm not able to motivate my son I'm able to motivate all these strange these strangers kids to do this incredible thing that we're doing but when it comes to motivating my own kid I there's I have no shot of doing that you know what I mean and we have a great relationship I, I guess I have some shot I'm role modeling I'm, I'm motivating by role modeling so I know that he works out because I work out. I know that I know that he's going to pick up on my habits, like his unkept room or my habits of my good habits, you know, some of my good character qualities. I can see that in him. I see so much of me in him, but in terms of um, me, uh, kind of imparting um, my last takeaway moment for our audience or your audience is that face your fear. He's falling into the same trap that I fell into. And I, and I, I was able to, to, to get the football players through that trap because I was on, and maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't impersonal. Maybe it wasn't coming from – when you're dealing with a family, where it's coming from, well, if you say that to me, that means you don't love me. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So it's, it's hard with your family telling them something because it's not – I don't know, there's an emotional attachment. There's certainly an emotional attachment with the football players, but it's a different type of emotional attachment.
1: Wow, that's a powerful statement and I can't tell you how much I appreciate Rob for the courage to be that open and that honest about his relationship with his son uh, his role in raising a young man and his his honesty about where he could do better and I know there's a lot of fathers out there who feel the same way you know courage and honesty are the two foundational core values of our sacred seven core values and you can see why here because without courage And without the courage to be honest and truly honest with yourself you have nothing and Rob has shown both courage and honesty here and I I truly appreciate that so talking with Rob and hearing his stories what I'm taking away from this and you know my team listens to the interviews over and over and we all had the same things that we're taking away from this interview but number one above all else What we're taking away is the impact that a mentor can have on our lives. You know, listening to to Rob talk about Coach Smith and what he did for him and and the love and respect that he has for him and the impact that Coach Smith has had on Rob's life uh, and then how Rob was able to pass that along uh, to the people that he's mentored along the way, that really drives this home. You know, how being a mentor and being a role model It's just inspiring and it's critically important in the lives of men. Um, I also appreciated when Rob was talking about the awe of being and how connecting to nature is so critical for men, to connect to our natural selves. You know, I know for me, I feel the most relaxed and the most at home when I'm out hiking, but I just don't do it enough, so I'm going to change that. And finally, the importance of challenging yourself, of facing your fears, of pushing out of your comfort zone and not being afraid to fail and actually actually embracing the failure as fuel for growth and success because this is what we're built for, right? Facing fears, taking on challenges. This makes us stronger, right? Pushes us to grow, right? It's the only way we're going to get better. And we're also taking away how facing those challenges together not alone, but with others, can form lifelong bonds and friendships. So I want to thank Rob B. Coach B, for taking the time to join us and for being open and real and honest with us and with himself because that's a true hero. So now to you. What are you taking away from Rob's story? What are you going to do now? How are you going to challenge yourself? And what fears are you going to face? I want to hear about it. Let me know. Just find me on social media. The links are on the website. Remember, WLKHpodcast.com. Go there, find the social media links, click on them, and let me know. Also, remember to rate us and to leave a review and a comment. And most importantly, and I can't say this enough, uh, make sure to share this show with men you know will get value from it. So please pass it on. I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Speaks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you on your hero's journey. We'll talk to you next week.